Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Chatterjee, and I'm so honored to have in studio this week just a phenomenal guest. I know there's a lot of folks who you can say they've done it all. Our guest this week really has done it all. He's been a state secretary of agriculture, a United States congressman, a United States senator, a governor, a candidate for president of the United States, and most recently, the United States ambassador at large for international religious freedom. We are so delighted to have Ambassador Sam Brownback on the Plugged In podcast this week. Ambassador, thank you for joining us. Hey, great to join you, Neil, and uh, thank you for doing this. I, I, I appreciate the, the tactic and the angle that you're doing on these podcasts in general, and I'm, I'm glad you're out there doing it. Good to join you again. I've had the privilege of, uh, of being in your orbit uh, a long time, dating back to, uh, to our time together in the United States Senate, um, and it's just so great to have you on today. So many issues that I'd love to discuss with you. Uh, but I have to start just because of your experience and the platform that you've had and the experience uh, and, and the engagement you've had uh, in the international arena. Um, you know, the entire world is fixated on what's happening in Ukraine right now uh, and would love to just kind of um, get a sense from you on the experiences you've had with the Ukrainian people and uh, and what you're seeing unfold and, and what its implications are for our energy, but religious freedom and just uh, global life in general. Why, thanks, uh, Neil. And yeah, my, I'm fixated on what's taking place in the Ukraine and Russia. And you just, a month ago, you, if you asked most people in the world, they would have thought, you're not going to see tanks roll into Ukraine from Russia. I mean, maybe they go into the Donbass region, but, but not broadly. And here you've got a World War II scale fighting taking place in the Ukraine in 2022. Uh, it's just, it's almost unimaginable. But President Putin, uh, he doesn't think Ukraine is a country. He doesn't think Ukrainians are people uh, separate from being Russians. They're not Ukrainians. They're Russians uh, in his mind. And, um, and he's just fixated on bringing them back. And the, I, to me, the, the interesting thing also about it is he is ensuring that the Ukrainian people will not be Russians by what he is doing. He is driving them away by trying to control them, by trying to hold them into the Russian orbit, by trying to make Ukraine into a vassal state under Russia, under, under Mother Russia, and they don't want any part of Mother Russia. Uh, and I just, I, it's to me, what Putin is doing is ensuring that the Ukrainians are splitting off mentally, spiritually, socially from the Russian people by what, what he is driving now. You know, one of the roots of this, too, was the Ukrainian people wanted their own Orthodox church. It's a very religious population, uh, and they were part always throughout history, the last 2,000 years, of the Russian Orthodox church, last 1,300 years. And um, they said, no, we want a Ukrainian Orthodox church. Got it. And that really split the Russians and the Ukrainian people. And 40% of the Russian Orthodox Church were Ukrainians. And the Russians didn't like that. And, uh, but I think they just, the point has been proven here is that this is a separate nation. They want to be associated with Europe and not dominated by Russia. And that's going to happen. And it may, 
who knows what Putin's going to be able to hold on to and get done here. But I think he has ensured the severance of the Ukrainian people from the Russian people, whatever time frame, it is going to happen because mentally and in their hearts, they're gone. And he has ensured that that's taken place. It has big impacts on us, energy and agriculture. Uh, this is a big uh, wheat exporting area. This is a big energy producing uh, region, both, uh, both places. So we're going to have a lot of global shocks uh, taking place by this. But uh, the real tragedy is for the Ukrainian people and the, the carnage that uh, the Russian military and, and Vladimir Putin is putting on them. Well, it's something I know uh, we're all fixated on. Uh, I've been particularly touched to see, I think of latest count, you know, 80,000 Ukrainian expats uh, have returned home to fight yeah. for them, and, which is just a beautiful thing. 20,000 military veterans from around the world uh, ha have come to, uh, to defend Ukraine. And so while it is a horrific situation, um, it also is inspiring. I think uh, Zelensky's just been amazing to watch throughout the, and, and the great leadership. Here on the Plugged In Podcast, it is an energy-focused podcast. Um, you mentioned the importance of energy in this situation. Um, the United States recently announced that, you know, we were going to have a prohibition on oil imports from Russia. Um, you know, with all the roles that you've played and your knowledge in this area, I mean, do you think that'll have any impact? It will. It will. It's going to have an impact on Russia. But you, I think the thing really to watch here is China. China is the great enabler of Russia doing what they're doing. And Xi Jinping could have stopped this. When Vladimir Putin goes to the Olympics, just before the Olympics, and goes to, to China, and the request out of Xi Jinping is just don't do the invasion during the Olympics, Xi Jinping could also said, don't do the invasion. This is wrong. Don't do it. And he didn't. And the invasions happened. And then he's also going to give an out for Russian oil. If the Chinese wouldn't do that, this would really be crippling on the Russians. But China's got a big uh, appetite for oil. They need a lot of oil. And, and really, China's the puppet master on this thing. I, I, I really think China's the one to watch longer term what they do and just hope and pray they don't invade Taiwan or they and the Russians uh, fund the Taliban or other uh, terrorist groups to attack Europe, us, Israel, because yeah, I could really see with Putin getting his back against the wall, him just unleashing some of these terrorist groups that that now they're in league with. It's a frightening time for sure. I, I'm wondering, though, if, if China is looking at this and they're seeing the, the fierce resistance in Ukraine and they're wondering, you know, if it's this difficult to take, you know, uh, uh, Kiev, uh, how hard would it be to take Taipei? I hope they're thinking that. I think they both looked at us pulling out of Afghanistan and said, now's the time to move. The United States won't use its muscle. Uh, and I, it, pulling out of Afghanistan was a disastrous thing uh, for us. And it, and it really, and it's still hurting people. I'm still working with folks trying to get them out that worked for Western NGOs or religious minorities out of, out of Afghanistan. Uh, but I think it really sent a signal to Putin and to Xi Jinping that now's the time to move. The United States is pulling back. And um, I, I do hope that 
Xi Jinping is looking at what's taking place here and saying, this isn't the time to move into Taiwan. Isn't it interesting how he's looking at this whole thing? Because he's like, he doesn't want to pull away from Russia, but he doesn't want to seem like he's an irresponsible world leader. And so he's trying to kind of wiggle his way uh, through that maze. And, and it's just, I think we need to see it for what it is. He's the great enabler of this activity and of mo- many of the human rights around abuses around the world are enabled by the Chinese government. Pivoting it back to, uh, to energy and the role that energy plays in this, you know, one of the interesting components has been, you know, Russia's economic interests are tied in oil, but their political influence over Europe really comes via natural gas and, and the fact that they have gas dominance. And during my time at FERC, I know during your time in the Senate, the administration, you know, we've been proponents of using U.S. energy uh, as, as a, a component of our geopolitical strategy and that clean U.S. LNG would have positive economic benefits here at home, would enable our allies to have an alternative to, to Russian or Qatari gas, and clean U.S. LNG displacing more carbon-intense sources of fuel overseas would actually help lower global carbon emissions. But, you know, we've had, we've wrestled domestically with kind of balancing our climate objectives and decarbonization goals with our energy security interests. And, and one of the things that I have been impressed with throughout your career is, you know, you're a conservative leader, you're from Kansas, a conservative state, and yet you were a pioneer in, in leading policy on the deployment of wind resources. And you've been someone who's been very thoughtful. Can you talk a little bit about your views on, on energy, on clean energy and climate change and, and how Republicans can really start to, uh, to, to have our voices be heard in this space and say that we can have an agenda focused on energy security and reliability that also cares about the climate? We, we not only can we, we have to, uh, and we will. Uh, it, 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 it's something we have to do. My view of this is really you've just got to balance these three E's. You've got to balance energy, the environment, uh, and the economy. You, you, these three have, it's kind of like a triangle sitting on top of a pencil. You can kind of tilt it one way or the other a little bit, but you can't nosedive it or the, the whole thing knocks off. I mean, we are not going to wreck this economy. And you can't make these shifts uh, to just say, we're going to go completely to renewable energy next year without wrecking the economy. And you can't get it, can't get it done. But yet we need to keep improving the environment. We've got to move forward on a, a decarbonization uh, process. And, and to me, too, you always want to tell the world and you want to tell the people, you, we're going to bank into this. This is a big arc. We're not doing a hard right. We're doing a big bank like on an airplane where you just kind of bank the thing into it general, softly to make it go. But you, the, the beauty about it is you can and you do it with markets and you do it with incentives. You don't do it with regulations and you let people figure the way out themselves. Uh, like you were just mentioning about uh, natural gas. What a beautiful option. And it's a nice middle ground option to move to. It's, it's cleaner uh, than other carbon-based fuels. It's not there fully yet to renewable energy, but it, uh, we've got an abundant resource. It burns cleanly. And you, you work with that. And then particularly you get in times like this, you say, okay, we're going to need more carbon 
economy because we get shut out from Russia. We got to be able to have it here in the United States and not go into Venezuela or somewhere else and say, okay, can you guys produce more dirty fuel? And also from a really totalitarian regime, um, we've got to be just more sensible about that. And that's why I think that this is really a key policy agenda item that we as conservatives have to come up with is these sort of sensible approaches of how you bank into it. And it's very interesting, too, that the United States has reduced its carbon emissions more than any other industrialized country in the world over the past five years, over the past, and during the Trump administration. You're going, wait a minute, how'd you guys do that? Well, it's kind of sensible, market-driven deregulation and incentives to the renewable energy. That 30% production tax credit on wind energy Boom, just opened that field up and made, we got $11 billion of wind investment in Kansas, and it's almost all built on that production tax credit. And that's rural investment, which is significant. It's harder to draw in that investment. Oh, $11 billion in rural investment in Kansas. I don't know when the last time was we saw that much. It may have been during the Homestead Act when you had people just coming out here and 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 taking up 160 acres and investing, that's, that's a huge investment for us. I was in the Senate when you and Senator Grassley and others started to kick around this idea uh, of, of tax credits to incentivize wind. At that time, it was greeted with a lot of skepticism uh, within the, the Senate Republican Conference. Uh, have you seen an you know, uh, in, in evolution in the party uh, over the past you know, decade, decade and a half? As the business case for clean energy improves, do you think there's an opportunity to see more and more Republicans embrace the opportunities with clean energy? I think so. And, and uh, the beauty about it and the interesting thing to me about it is the Democrat answer is all regulation and government spending. And you're not going to get there that way. And you're going to make people mad on the process. You know, our process is let's open up unleashed market forces. Let's help renewable energy and tax credit ways, but it's your money that's doing the investing. It's not the federal government's. We're providing a tax credit to make the incentives of it work, but it's your money that's doing the investing. It's not government money doing it. And that's what will actually work. We do need to invest in research and development. Like we're going to need to do a lot more, I think, in the animal agriculture industry on how do we take methane uh, and make it into a convertible fuel uh, and I think that's doable, but we need better technology uh, on doing this. And we're going to need some market incentives doing it. But, but don't go out there and say, we're just going to eliminate large-scale cattle production, or we're going to make you pay twice as much for a hamburger. That's just, that's just craziness. That's not going to work. It's going to make everybody mad. And, and that's why I think, really, we've got an enormous opportunity as a party to come up with these sensible solutions that'll actually work and that'll and that people will appreciate and that politically I think are a real key and tool for us to get back with suburbs and um, young college educated that that we've really lost a lot of ground with. Now Ambassador for some of our listeners who may not be as familiar with uh, anaerobic digesters uh, just so we're clear are we talking about converting poop into energy? Yes, we are, sir. And uh, yeah, but it's it's just it's kind of it sounds stupid. It uh, sounds dirty. Maybe it works, but it's like many things. You know, you just need to you need to advance your technology to make it commercially viable. 
Uh, is some places, some systems, like some of these confined dairy units, uh, they've got it where it can work and you can pull the, the uh, methane gas off of it, clean it up and burn it uh, as natural gas. Uh, but in other systems, uh, we just don't, we don't have it, the technology right uh, yet. But I, I think this is a key piece. Methane is a very powerful uh, greenhouse gas. Uh, and we, but we've got an answer for how to deal with it. It's just we've got a better technology we need to get. And then I think we need to put a good market signal production tax credit type incentives uh, in the Senate, uh, I mean, in the system to incentivize it. And it'll work. And, and, and then people will embrace it. They embraced wind. The market sector embraced wind. They will embrace this if you just put the signals out there uh, better. I had a I had a great meeting with Warren Buffett a few years back. And, you know, he's like the greatest investor of all times. Uh, lives just north of Nebraska. And I was up and I, I was asking him, I said, well, how should we run government better? Thinking, you know, this guy ought to have a good answer to that. And I said, oh, I, don't, I don't know anything about running it. But if I were you, what I would really pay attention to is what I incentivize and what I disincentivize your signals that you're sending into the marketplace, because the marketplace is the efficient place to, to really make these things happen. And government isn't efficient. It's never claimed to be efficient. And it isn't. But watch your signaling. And, and, and I thought that's, that's really gold. And that's what we need to do on methane, like we did on wind. Well, nobody is more qualified to speak about, you know, how government can work at different angles than yourself, because I've mentioned in the intro, you really have had so many different opportunities at so many different levels. So you were in the United States Congress in the House of Representatives, one of 435, then were one of 100 in the Senate, and then you got to be an executive uh, as governor. Uh, can you guys, can you just give our listeners a perspective of the different opportunities and challenges from working in a collaborative body? Uh, on, on the legislative side, to having the opportunity as an executive, as a governor, can you just speak to the different approaches you took and the different roles? You know, the, they are, they're really different roles. You know, in the governor role, you're really leading and you're saying we should go this way. And then you're trying to build the coalition together to do it. In the legislative bodies, uh, you're often, uh, you're, you're building a team to try to move something forward. And you've got a lot of different obstacles to overcome. I loved, I loved the opportunity to do each one of them. I feel just extraordinarily blessed to have had the opportunity to do that. But uh, I, I think that's why really the presidency or a governorship is where you can lead on these sort of uh, renewable energy causes in an appropriate fashion. My predecessor, uh, Kathleen Sebelius, and then was replaced briefly by Mark Parkinson, they had a regulatory approach to win. Uh, they said, okay, we're going to require the market to produce 20% of the energy out of wind by a certain year. And we, we threw those off. Said, we're not going to require people to do anything uh, like that, but we're going to incentivize and we're going to recruit the market in here. Uh, and we went from the 13th most uh, wind-generated electricity state to the fifth under the pros of deregulating. And you, but you just, you lead by using different tools and you know, people don't like to be told what to do. They, I'm, I'm all for being vaccinated uh, with the COVID vaccine and I am vaccinated and I'm boost. I am opposed to mandates. 
I don't think you ought to tell people you ought to do it. Now, I think you ought to present the case. You ought to encourage them. You ought to push it. But don't tell them. You got to do it. And it's just against kind of the American spirit and really the same thing in these energy policies. That's what we've got. to. That's what the American people want to do. And that's how they want to do it. It's been so challenging to get anything through the the federal legislative process on energy, you know, really uh, not since the Energy Policy Act of 2005, if we had a significant reform to our, our, our federal energy policies. And so a lot of what has been done has been done via omnibus appropriations measures or, you know, through the tax code, which isn't ideal. And it's kicking a lot of these key decisions to the states, to agencies like FERC that may not necessarily be equipped to handle them. Um, you know, looking back upon your time in the Senate, now here you are, a, a Republican senator from Kansas who is promoting, you know, a win tax credit. Nowadays, you don't see much of that crossover anymore. It's like each of the parties have kind of gotten into their, their own corners. It's a 50-50 Senate. Tough to even get consent to acknowledge what day of the week it is. Uh, do you think you'd be frustrated in today's Senate? Or, or do you think as an institution, um, uh, it'd still be a fun place to try and get some things done? Oh, it's it's a fun place. Uh, and I, I think there are, there are more frustrations now. But I... You know what I think really has happened too much of the time is that you've just got um, people have gone to the extremes. So you've got the green energy deal, and it's either do that or you're evil on energy. And then you got other people that say, we're not going to do anything on it. Uh, but there are a lot of people there in the middle would like to make some incremental progress. Uh, I mean, that's what the Energy Act that we did in 2005. You, you could get Susan Collins to agree to an energy bill, but she isn't going to agree to some stupid, big, overarching, big government regulated, dominated bill. She's not going to agree to it. But she would agree to something that's smaller, that would move us forward on addressing climate change, that engages the markets, that makes some sense. And they would have these outside industry groups on both the conservative and liberal side embracing it. Just you, you make the you make the deal. I, I did a human trafficking bill with uh, Paul Wellstone at one time. And Paul, of course, died in a plane crash and just real loss. And he was wildly liberal and, and I'm conservative. But what we did on this human trafficking bill, he had things that he wanted to do that I thought were crazy, and we cut those off. I had things I wanted to do he thought was crazy. We cut those off, and we ended up with about you know, 50 60% of a bill, 20% cut off on his side, 20% on my side. And we had a bill that Gloria Steinem and Chuck Colson at the time both endorsed. And we would go up to people and say, you know, we want you to endorse this bill, and we got these sort of backers. And they said, look, if you two can agree on something, Sign me up. I don't. I don't know what it is, but sign me up because if you guys can agree on something, I'm good with it. And that's that's really that's what we need to do on energy. That's what we need to do on climate issues. And it's there. That is doable still. If if people would just get away from the extremist uh, positions that the other side just can't agree with. I mean, don't you think? Well, that's what the majority of the American people want is they yeah. want to come together and 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 give up some on the fringes and, and, and cut that consensus deal? Absolutely. They're, they're begging for it. But it's also, you know, I mean, the 24-hour media cycle, you know, if you, if you work now with a Paul Wellstone, you get categorized as being a liberal. You know, you work with a Sam Brownback now, you get categorized as being a conservative. And so the, 
you know, the echo chambers really push back on it. But I think that's when you really need your more senior leadership just standing up and saying, look, guys, this is a serious issue. Uh, and we can get something done. We aren't going to get everything you want uh, done, but we can get something done and we need to. And, and this, the climate issues relative to energy really need to be done. We need to use the energy might of the United States. We need to use the technology might of this country to show the world how you can move forward on this. And on a gradual basis, you remove your carbon basis on it in ways that don't dislocate and that actually even grow your economy. And that's the, the problem really with it, I think, as a, in a political sense, is how do you present that politically to your base of people that, that, that don't want to give any quarter to folks on this side? I think that's the real challenge because elections are not about nuance. Uh, you, you're, they're about blunt instrument approaches. And, and I, I think we've got to come up with some of those ways that we can get these passed, even in, in people supported in an election cycle. Yeah, I've been frustrated that that climate change and concern about climate change has really almost become identified as an issue aligned with the political left. And here there are leaders uh, uh, in the conservative movement who care about the planet, who care about climate change, but who just want to focus on market-based solutions and not overarching regulations. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering, as we look ahead to, to 2024, you know, should the Republican Party, you know, uh, have a, a, a platform to address climate change? Do you think it will be incumbent upon our nominee in 2024 to be able to talk about leadership on climate change and market based solutions? Absolutely. I, I, I don't I really question if our nominee could get elected without doing that. You're, you're writing off a lot of suburbanites and, and young people if we don't. And the British conservatives have shown us a way. They have a climate change program, and it's not radical, but it does address, it is sincere, it is significant. Uh, and I, I think we should look at British conservatives on this and say, you know, here, these guys have, have come up with a route of how you talk about it. I remember when George W. Bush started talking about education policy uh, uh, and leave no, uh, no child left behind. And, you know, and I'm kind of going, you know, look, education is a state issue. Uh, but they saw it as a way to talk to suburbanites uh, that were deeply concerned about education and for the first time started to get actual measurables in there in the K-12 system about is your school, how's your school doing for your kids? Let's measure and let's test, which was a fabulous thing. You need to test to be able to know if you can't measure it, you can't change it. It, it was really an important move. Uh, and I think that's the nature of this issue now. I think we have to do it. It's just we, we're going to have to present it in a sensible market-based uh, approach. And I think we need to go to religious conservatives on this, uh, as this is about caring for the planet, guys. We were put in charge of the planet here and, um, and to be good stewards of what we have. And this is just about being good stewards. Well, thank you for doing your part to, to get that message out and, and, and to showcase to uh, the American people, to the media, to the public that there are conservatives that care about the planet and care about climate change. Um, here on the Plugged In Podcast, we like to mix in uh, a little bit of substance with you know reflection on, on, on other issues. Um, as I look at the Kansas delegation congressionally, 
you know, for, for a rural state, you guys have really had some titans uh, in the Congress. Uh, yourself, you know, Senator Roberts was, was such a leader in agriculture. Um, we now, you know, Secretary Pompeo had uh, uh, obviously a critical, you know, global role after coming out of the Kansas delegation. Uh, but most significantly, we recently uh, lost uh, a, a titan from the Kansas delegation. Uh, in, our, in our final moments, uh, uh, can you maybe uh, give a story or two or an anecdote about what you learned from, uh, from, from the late Senator uh, uh, Bob Dole? He, he was the iconic figure of the World War II generation. I mean, he really embodied it. It was self-sacrifice. He was patriotic to the bone. He was God-fearing man. Uh, my last conversation with him was probably a month, six weeks before he died and prayed together on the phone. You know, I think though the, the thing that I really learned from him was kind of how you bring people together. Bob Dole was a master of the Senate. He was majority leader, minority leader at different times for lengthy periods of time. But he wanted to get things done. And he often didn't really care who got the 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 award or the recognition for it, but just how let's get it get it done. And I I just saw that real humble uh, nature about I don't care who gets the glory. I just I want us to get this done. Dwight Eisenhower was the Kansan of the sesquicentennial. And that was really his role in World War II as the commander, the, the general allied commander was. There were other more flamboyant generals or other ones that had more battle record uh, than him. But there was nobody that could bring the team together like he did. Uh, and you had to bring the team together. And, and that's the thing I learned really from Bob Dolan that I observed in the Eisenhower uh, legacy was um, – it's just we, let's get it done, guys, and we'll we'll sort sort the glory out later. But let's get it done. Well, you've had your own fantastic legacy as well, and continue to do great work, uh, Congressman, Senator, Governor, Ambassador. Thank you for joining the Plugged In Podcast and for sharing your views. Hey, thank you, Neil. Appreciate it. God bless you. Take care. Thanks again for listening to season two of the Plugged In podcast. New episodes will be available on Tuesdays at noon Eastern time. You can also keep up with all things energy by following the Washington Examiner on all of our social media channels and subscribing to the Daily on Energy newsletter written by yours truly, Jeremy Beeman.